Samuel uh, this morning, and we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 9. We'll do all of chapter 9 this week, aiming to do 10 next week. And as we uh, approach this chapter, I want to remind you that a prominent theme, if not the biggest theme, in the book of 1 Samuel is leadership. And you come out of the book of Judges, and the author tells you numerous times, they, you know why they were so messed up? They didn't have a king, that's why. They didn't have a king. And then you get to 1 Samuel, and it's the quest for a king. It's the search for a king. It's how they first got their original uh, king, and we're introduced to that person, Saul, here. I also want to remind you how this plays into your life, because kings and horses and chariots just is stuff of fantasy or history or movies and uh, that's not what you're concerned about this morning you're concerned about work retirement marriage raising children the weather whatever and you should you should be those are the things that are in front of you but Paul told us all scripture is profitable not just for people that live in kingdoms all right, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired to prepare you for good work. So this is about kings, but it's really about leadership. And that transcends time and culture because every single one of us surrounds ourselves with leaders. And we call them influencers sometimes, but they're the people that wield influence in your life. You manage that in your life, like when you jump on Facebook and there's certain people that you want to block, you want to unfriend. I don't want to unfriend them, but I just want to hear their messages, mute them for 30 days. You kind of control who's speaking into your life. And then others, you can say, I want to hear more about that person. I want to know every post that person posts. The people you follow on Instagram or other uh, social media platforms. These are the people you listen to when they speak. You go, huh, I like that. I want that. When you maybe subconsciously think about the kind of person you want to be or the kind of person you want to marry or the kind of person you want your kids to be, you may not have sat down and opened up a Mead composition notebook and wrote down three or four qualities that you're looking for, but you do have certain things. If you were pressed, you could write down certain things. Uh, And if you were pressed to write down the qualities you'd be looking for, you probably wouldn't, even if you didn't have the qualities that God is looking for, you probably wouldn't have obvious bad ones. If you are thinking about marrying somebody, you're choosing, you're you're dating, you're selecting, right? And let's not be confused. That's what dating is for. There's none of this dating around stuff. Dating is for marriage selection. That's what it's for. If you're not ready for marriage, uh, maybe don't date. That's That's a freebie for this morning. But it is a vetting process, okay? You're vetting the person, your friends are vetting the person, your parents are vetting the person, and it's a big deal. It's a big decision. Now, if you wrote down the top things that you're looking for in a person and you were truly honest with yourself, you probably wouldn't have bad things on there even if God wouldn't approve of the list. I mean, if you had things like, well, he's a, he's a drug addict, but, uh, you know, hey, we all have our things. Like, uh, he makes enough money to support the habit, so... Not that big of a deal, you know. Well, those are obvious ones. Right? He, he, you know, he sleeps around, but, you know, hey, you know. 
No, you're looking for security. You're looking for a good job, maybe some education, maybe somebody who likes your humor. And those aren't sinful things. They're not bad things. And what you're going to see in 1 Samuel 9 is a profile of the wrong king. But when you read the chapter, he's not so bad. What's wrong with this guy? It doesn't say Saul's an idolater. It doesn't say Saul's an adulterer. It doesn't say Saul is murderous. None of that stuff. He's a normal dude going about his normal life and he's not even looking for kingship. It comes to him. What's so bad about that? In fact, when he's told, hey, I'm going to anoint you by the prophet, his response seems like a humble one. Hey, me? Oh, not me. I come from a small clan. You know, like I'm not, I'm not all that. So here's what I want you to see. As we read this chapter, we're going to read the whole thing, get it out in front of us, and then I'll make some observations with you. I want you to see that Saul's not a bad guy. But then when we look closer, we're going to see he's, he's the wrong guy. He's the wrong guy. And then I hope to wrap it back around to the kind of choices you make in your life, the people that you surround yourself with, the friends that you allow to influence you, all right, or the kind of spouse you're looking for, or the kind of uh, man or woman you want your son or daughter to become. Uh, this is going to be very informative for us, I think. So I hope you're there with me. First Samuel chapter 9, and I'm going to read through all 27 verses straight through, and then we'll back up and start from the top. But let's get the, this section of the narrative in front of us. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you, And arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalem, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who was held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again. Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And he said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Verse 11. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met Young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? 
They answered, He is. Behold, He is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As you as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel Tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, Where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it And set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose. And both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. And indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, starting at the top. On the surface... When we read this story, when we read this episode of the story of 1 Samuel, on the surface, this decision looks like it makes sense. They're supposed to get a king. They asked for a king. In the way they asked it, they were rejecting God, but God said, you know what, Samuel, listen to them. We're going to give them a king. And now God uh, is orchestrating things. The lost donkeys, they can't find them. They happen to, uh, the, the servant happens to remember, oh, there's a man of God in the city that we're in. Oh, my goodness. You know, and then they go meet the man of God. And then the night before God tells that prophet, hey, I'm going to bring you this guy. He doesn't know what's going on, but you're going to tell him, hey, you're going to be the king and you're going to anoint him and all that kind of stuff. Right. So you see God weaving together the answer to their request to have a king. And when you're reading it, there's no sinning going on. There's no idols that need to be smashed. There's 
Saul's not getting rebuked by the prophet. And so on the surface, it seems like the choice makes sense. Now I remind you, this is the danger, okay? We go around going, well, I think this is a perfectly good girlfriend or a perfectly good boyfriend, or I think my kids are doing pretty well, and our standard for it is at least they're not doing drugs. At least they're not going around doing the stuff I did when I was a kid. At least he's not how my previous boyfriend was. At least he's not like my dad. And the bar is way down here. Now, this guy's supposed to be king of Israel. We're not asking for somebody. Okay, Israel, this is not somebody being selected to, like, deliver mail or something that's just sort of A to B and... No, no disrespect to mail carriers. I'm just saying it's different than leading a kingdom. And so it looks benign. This guy is of good stock. Look at verse 1. Okay, he comes from this uh, tribe of Benjamin. From, he's the son of this man named Kish. And Kish is, the end of verse 1 there, a man of wealth. So he'd even be... Uh, able to run for U.S. uh, presidency because he's got cash and uh, he's a man of of impressiveness. Uh, Some translations will say a man of importance. Literally, the Hebrew says a powerful man of, and then you can translate it strength or might or wealth. So he, he has ability, okay, to purchase and to buy and to deny somebody and to have somebody in his pocket. All that kind of stuff is power. Wealth is power. And so he's got all of that. And then his dad is introduced with four generations. That doesn't happen when it's just a, a random dude. It's like the son of this guy, the son of that guy, the son of that guy. It's like this importance that you saw back when Elkanah was introduced. This is someone who's important. And the text is going, you, hey, important guy, important guy, four generations. So just in the way uh, Saul's dad is introduced is impressive. Then, of course, Scripture very rarely describes how people look. And then here, it says that the son, Saul, the son of Kish, was a handsome young man. He's got looks and he's got youth. And then, just in case you missed it, there was not a man among the people of Israel, not just his clan, not just his tribe. If you look through all of Israel, nobody can compare to this People magazine cover, Time magazine cover, model-looking dude. You're reading, you're like, okay, I didn't know this was a beauty contest, but what is the text telling us? He's got the money, he's got the background, he's got the dad, the property, the animals, and he's got the looks. Then, to emphasize it more, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, those of you that are closer to my stature, you realize how many sports... You just might as well not even sign up, you know. It's a challenge, man. It's a challenge when you're vertically challenged. And this dude, you could see him in a crowd way out there because everyone else's heads are down here. It's not like a couple inches, all right. So he is tall, and he is a man of uh, impressive physicality on top of the wealth. Some of y'all already hate him, right? But it's not his fault. He was born handsome. He was born from a wealthy family. And the text is giving us those those facts. So now, just immediately off the bat, we see what's the problem. 
Okay, they need someone of stature. They need somebody. It would make sense to have somebody with some wealth and, you know, you, you want a guy. Now, you need to remember that the background to this is that when they asked for a king, God wasn't upset with them because they asked for a king. You remember when Ben preached through this passage, God said they rejected me because they asked for a king like the nations. Well, that's the key. It's not wanting a king or wanting a husband or wanting a wife or wanting your children to be a certain way or wanting your pastor to be a certain way. Whatever people in your life that you have any kind of control and in, in influencing who that person is in your life, it's not that we are clamoring for wicked people. It's that when we look at the wrong things, we get the wrong guy even if those wrong things aren't evil things. Is that, is that making sense? All right? Saul's not a wicked guy, but he's definitely the wrong guy. Now, spoiler alert, if this is your first time ever going through 1 Samuel, uh, it, it turns out he's not a good guy. When you take a guy whose wickedness is not obvious, but his godliness is also not obvious, and you put that person in position to have authority in your life, that's when the things that look neither here nor there become quite wicked. When a person has opportunity uh, that they shouldn't have due to godliness, they just have it due to other things that seem on the surface like amoral things. They're not good, but they're not bad. They're just, he's just tall. What's the big deal? When we make choices based on those kinds of things, we get Saul types in our lives easily, and it leads to much pain. So here's what I want to do quickly. I want to show you from this text seven ways that this passage gives us hints that this is the wrong guy. It gives us hints. And as we, I think, lean into this, I think we'll learn how to choose carefully in our lives when we're thinking about people that we're surrounding ourselves with. So from verses 3 all the way through verse 21, I want to give you seven hints. I didn't try to get seven just because it sounds spiritual. It's just the ones that are there. And none of them are big. I just want to remind you, none of them are big flagrant things where you go, oh, he is wicked. No, they're just, they just, if you could just pass through them really quickly. But if you do a combined case, a cumulative analysis, all right, where the little things start adding up, you're going... I don't think the author is very impressed by this guy. I'm not even sure uh, the prophet Samuel is very impressed by this guy. He's actually very unimpressive. And so the first thing we notice is this exaggerated description of his height. And if you look at where scripture emphasizes the height of people, they're always wicked. You remember back in Numbers, this is chapter 13, verse 33 in Numbers, where the text describes the Canaanites, man. The Canaanites, they were going to be tough, tough dudes. They had the Nephilim, big guys. Don't want to fight them. Everybody's scared. Suddenly people, they're they're quaking. Their their knees are knocking. Their, their, Their faith in God is threatened because these people are so big. In Deuteronomy 12, they're supposed to go in and conquer these guys, And what's their complaint? But they're taller than us. Okay? They're taller than us. 
Again, describing the height of the wicked people that they're supposed to, God is judging them by having Israel go in and, and take them out. And then, of course, if you fast forward, who's the next real tall guy that we get in 1 Samuel? Anybody? Goliath. Bad dude. Blaspheming God and everything, right? So, so tall in Scripture, it's not that being tall is bad. It's just that Scripture points out the height of people to show you that if you're not operating in faith, you're scared of that guy. Or in this case, if you're not operating by faith, you really like this guy to be your king. They all have tall people. I want a tall king. They have wealthy kings. I want a wealthy king. They want a king like the nations. And so when we approach decision-making, we need to be thinking not like the nations. I don't want to choose the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the husband, the wife that everyone else would choose when they don't have scripture and they don't have God's guidance. That's the dude everybody would choose. But who would you choose if you were different? And that's what this text is about. Who should Israel want? And they're wanting the wrong guy. Not because he's a sinful guy, but he's a lame As you'll see in the text, he's just, he just, he's just spiritually lame. So he's described the way the text, uh, scripture texts describe bad guys. That's the first thing we notice. Number two, his task is to find donkeys, and he can't do it. The text says they went here, nope. They went there, mm-mm. They went over here, no. And so right off the bat, not real competent. Now, this is a guy that's supposed to lead the nation. He can't find some donkeys. Now, I know that's hard. They're donkeys, and the land is big, and they don't have GPS. It's not like they were, the donkeys had apple tags on their you know, collars. And so I, I get it. It's difficult. But the text is going out of its way to go. They search here. They search here. They search here. Couldn't find it. To make it worse, he gives up. He gives up and he tells his servant in the first uh, six verses of this narrative. He tells the servant, hey, you know what? Let's just go home before dad starts worrying about me. Are you really concerned about that or you just can't find donkeys? And then his servant has to come up with the idea to keep the mission going. The, the lowly servant guy has to be the one to go, hey, I have an idea. But Saul was all out of ideas. He's just looking around for donkeys. I don't see donkeys. Ah, oh, let's go home. Do you even care about the donkeys? Now, I, I need to remind you, this is not like a farm that lost three goats that people come and pet, but they don't really do anything. Donkeys was like their tractors, man. Like, if any of you have any background in agriculture or farming, like that guy that you know that owns a farm, imagine he lost three tractors or something like that. Like, we need to find this, man, because this is how we make money. This is how all that wealth doesn't come out of nowhere. But Saul's like, ah, I couldn't find them. Eh, how about we go home? And the servant is like, no, no, we need a plan B, man, because we need to make sure this happens. So the servant is the one that's sort of taking the leadership role here. You see that? Hmm. Not real forthright. Not much of a leader. Not an evil dude. Just not real competent at his job or what he's being asked to do. Number three. When the servant comes up with the idea to go see the man of God or the prophet, same thing, man of God in the Old Testament especially is, is a prophet. Is Saul making an excuse? Ah, you know what? That'd be a good idea, but... And then he turns his pockets into rabbit ears and he's like, 
I don't have any money for the prophet. You know, what am I going to pay him? Does he really not have money or is it an excuse? Hmm. I put a question mark there. doesn't say, but it's weird, first of all, that he would think that a prophet needs to be paid off when uh, the man of God gets his living from the temple. And it's weird that, and this is number four, the servant has to cough up the money to pay off the man of God. The servant isn't the son of a man of wealth. Saul is, you jerk. Uh, we don't have anything. What do you got? It's like if they, it's like rich dude goes out to lunch with a high schooler and makes him pay. It's the same thing. The, the bill comes and you're just looking at the high schooler like, well, how are you going to pay it? High schooler's counting change from the last, the, the last lawn he mowed. Saul is a man of, his son of a man of wealth. And the servant has to pay. So do you see these hints where it's like, what's up with this dude? Okay. So that was number four. Number five, and this is more important, I think. Number five is that the servant has to think of the man of God. It doesn't even cross Saul's mind that there's a man of God anywhere, let alone the fact that the man of God lives in this city. Now notice how the text calls him the man of God. You know who he is, wink, wink. You know it's Samuel. But they don't know who he is. Oh, I heard there's a man of God here. It's like somebody coming to the States, like, oh, who lives in that big white house on whatever, Pennsylvania Avenue, right? Like, who, who lives there? I heard a guy lives in that house, like a dude. Like, a dude? You mean the president, right? Samuel? What do you mean a man of God? And he doesn't even think of it. Oh, let's go home. I guess there's nothing to do. Meaning the servant is thinking spiritually. What can God do here? If God were to help us in this situation, how would he do it? He'd do it through a man of God. That's right, that's right. There is a man of God, and maybe the servant doesn't know the name, but he's the servant. And then Saul doesn't go, that's right, Samuel. He's like, who, what, where? He's confused. Because even though he may not be about going around doing evil things, he doesn't know the good things either. And so that's not a good sign Somebody who thinks of excuses first is not willing to go the length to finish his job. And the last thing he's thinking of is what God thinks about his decisions. This isn't good. We're not even sure he knows that Samuel exists. Now, here's why, here's why it's so crazy, okay? I just want to remind you, and you can turn there if you want to, but back in 1 Samuel 3, verse 20. Back in 1 Samuel 3, verse 20, that verse comes before last time Israel operated like if there was no Samuel. Hannah prayed for Samuel. God brought Samuel. He's in the temple and they just forget him. Remember they're doing the crazy stuff with the trying to fight the Canaanites and they're like, oh, we need help here. Oh, let's bring the ark. They bring the ark out. It gets even worse. No one's consulting Samuel that whole time. In 1 Samuel 3 verse 20, the text says, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. All Israel knew that, except for Saul, apparently. How is that possible? Chapter 4, verse 1 says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So all Israel has heard Samuel's sermons. And then Saul went home and he's like, I don't remember. Who, who was that? 
That's not good. It's one thing to consider someone that might be a potential spouse for you who doesn't do bad things, but if you ask them to turn in Scripture with you to look at something, they're like, oh, yeah, where is that? Where? Who? Uh, oh, yeah, I think my grandmother has a Bible. I'll be right back. Hey, he's not a serial killer, but is that the person you want <laughs> in marriage? Then number six, when he sees Samuel, when he sees Samuel, he doesn't recognize Samuel, even though Samuel recognizes him. And this is verse, verses 11 through 19. They're going up to the hill. He sees these women. He asks the seer here, doesn't know his name. He's just like the seer. He's not even using the more appropriate term prophet. They were still stuck in this seer mode. That's how he saw him, and that's probably why he thought he had to offer money, just like if you saw someone, you know, that read tarot cards or something like that, and, you know, you're like, hey, can you read cards for me? And you'd probably have to cough up some money. They don't work for you, right? They don't, they're not, it's not for free. And so he's seeing Samuel not as a man of God, but he's seeing him like a seer. And I think that's why the text is, they used to call him seers then. It wasn't this, this role of prophet that uh, was understood yet, maybe. I don't know. But that's what he calls him, verse 11. Is the seer here? They're like, well, he's not here, but he's going to be here. And then he goes to meet him, verse 14. They were entering the city, and they saw Samuel. There's the name. They saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. And the text does a timeout, tells you beforehand, God told Samuel, hey, I'm going to send you this dude. So Samuel knows he's coming. He's never heard of him before, but God gives him the insight. So the text is like, hey, Samuel's legit. He's an actual prophet. But is this guy an actual king? The text is contrasting these two dudes because when uh, Saul sees Samuel, he doesn't recognize Samuel. But when Samuel sees Saul, he recognizes him. And it should be the reverse. The famous guy recognizes the nobody, and the nobody can't recognize the famous guy. Famous for being God's choice to lead Israel at that time. So uh, God tells Samuel in uh, verse 17, hey, this is the guy. And then in verse 18, when Saul sees Samuel, he's like, hey, do you know where the seer lives? Even though the ladies are like, you're going to see him. And when he sees him, he still doesn't recognize him. Samuel's like, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the seer. Let's go, come on. Probably somewhat unimpressed that he wasn't recognized. Number seven, and of course, these things I'm giving you are hints that the text gives you that this is not a good choice for leadership. Number seven is the excuse that he gives uh, Samuel when Samuel tells him what he's going to do and what God wants to do with him. In verse 20, Saul, uh, Samuel tells Saul, uh, hey, don't worry about the donkeys. We got that taken care of, all right? Forget about the donkeys. Uh, but all of Israel's desire is on you and your father's house. So we need to be thinking about that now. And then verse 21, Saul says, ah, but I'm a Benjamite. A Benjaminite. <laughs> From the least of the tribes of Israel. And then out of those least tribes, my clan is the least one out of those, you know? Uh, so why have you spoken to me in this way? Now, at first glance, that might just be humble. Hey, you know, I'm not that great. 
but he already has a habit in the story of making excuses to not go do the thing he should go do. So probably he just doesn't want to go do stuff. He'd just rather go back to his Xbox. He doesn't want a job, especially one that all eyes on you. Now you have responsibility. Now it's leadership. At home, I have wealth and power without responsibility. Now you're telling me all Israel's eyes are on me and I'm going to have responsibility? I think that's what he's doing. Doesn't quite say it, but when you read the rest of Saul's story, you're like, I, I got you, man. I, I know the kind of guy you are. And this isn't, oh, me, it shouldn't be me. Pick someone who's better. It's, uh, can I go home? So those are just seven hints that we see in this text, and maybe there are others, but I don't think, even though at first glance, even I myself, I read through it, and I'm like, oh, not a bad start for Saul. I know what's coming, but at first, you know, not, not a bad start. But then when you look closer, you're like, actually, not, not a good choice, though. Not a good choice. I love how when he gives the excuse in verse 21, hey, but I'm a Benjamite. Verse 22 is, then Samuel took Saul. It doesn't even answer him, right? He's like, shut up, we're doing this. And I think that's what's happening in the story. It's like God's doing it not because Saul is actually good. He's doing it because he's choosing to do it. So Samuel's like, look, that was a dumb excuse, but we're doing this. He doesn't even engage him in the dumb excuse. He's just saying, let's go. And then he's like, you're, uh, send your son, young servant away. We're doing this just you and me. In other words, stop clinging to this dude and having him make decisions for you. Let him go home and do the stuff that he's supposed to do. You have a new job, and it's not going to be by proxy through this servant. I think that's what's happening there when Samuel sends the servant away, and we're going to do this right here. This is not about him. This is, this is what God is doing with you. So what we're seeing in this passage, and I'll try to start wrapping this up now, God uses this king who's not going to be a good king. He's actually going to be a a terrible king, just like God told Israel what happened when they wanted a king that's like the nations. And just like oftentimes your parents told you those aren't good friends to keep and you didn't listen, or somebody told you that's probably not great marriage material and you didn't listen, or you saw how other people were raising their kids, but you didn't want to be a party pooper for your kids and you didn't listen, And now your kids are struggling as they enter young adult life from the lack of discipline that you didn't, that you, the discipline that you didn't provide because you didn't listen to the counsel of scripture or the counsel of those who didn't want to raise their kids like the nations. God is doing it though. He's still putting this king in place, I think, in order to contrast the coming king that is the promised king. Ultimately, that's Jesus Christ, but in the narrative, the next one's David, and you see how opposite they are. They're very opposite, okay? So God is saying, you want a king like the nations? The first king is gonna be the one that you want. How's it going for you? How's that? He's not wicked. He's just spiritually lame. How's that going for you? Terrible. Now let me show you how I choose a guy. That's when you enter the David episode. And David points to Christ, as we're going to see over and over again through 1 Samuel. So when I look at this, I'm like, God, why didn't he just go, no, 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 dumb choice, and go straight to David the first time? I think it's because he's teaching a lesson for all of us to learn from. If you were left up to your own choices, your own wisdom, you make your own lists of checkboxes that you want the girlfriend, the boyfriend, your kids, your pastor, whoever it is in your life, 
that influences you, those boxes that you create, they're not great. But if you listen to what I value, then they will be much better for you. So he lets Israel fall into their own mess first. Then he brings them out of it with his guy and David. Right now, the mess hasn't even started yet. Right now, we're just seeing how the choice was made in the beginning. Later, when Israel looks back, where did we miss it? You missed it because you got a guy who's attractive. You've got a guy who's tall. You got a guy who can dunk a basketball. Wow. Wow. Right? You've got a guy who's got background and wealth. You've got a guy that when your arm is on his and you walk into the party, everyone's like, whoa, how'd you get that guy? Good for you. It's not going to go well with you. I think what this passage is pointing to ultimately is that God allows us sometimes to make poor choices. In this particular case, he's letting Israel make a poor choice for us to learn from it. And then eventually, as we see the story weaved into the rest of 1 Samuel, we see how God uses that poor choice and redeems it for something better. And ultimately, that something better is someone better in Jesus Christ. Let's finish by one observation quickly in verse 20. That strange phrase that stuck with me. As for your donkeys that were three days ago, that you were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all all your father's house? I was like, come on, ESV, you can clean that up a little bit. I had to read that like four times. And for whom is all, if I spoke to you like that, you'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was just asking you where we're going to lunch. I'd be like, for whom is all that is we're eating and appetite like what are you talking about man the it's like the verbs in the wrong place i don't know what's going on but i think if you look at it carefully what samuel is telling him is all of israel has a desire that desire is for a king sadly that desire is for a king like the nations and god said okay and we haven't heard anything yet and i'm telling you today all of that desire is found in you everything israel wants is you and the kind of household you come from and the kind of background and the kind of resume that you have. That's, that's what Israel wants. Interestingly, that famous Christmas song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, has that one line you'll remember, Dear Desire of Every Nation, who is Christ. Now when I think about that line in connection with this line, I go, hmm, They want a king like all the nations, but I think what that hymn is getting at is that God changes hearts here, there, everywhere to want a different kind of king. And so when we say, come thou long expected Jesus, sort of like uh, not just welcoming Jesus in his birth, which is behind us historically now, but we're also looking ahead to his return, that return of that one king, we realize that God has taken people from all over the world that want certain kinds of leaders and he's changed their hearts to want a different kind of leader so that in this text, all of the people that should see it right put their desire in the wrong guy. God does something eventually where he takes people from all over the world who shouldn't get it right and they do get it right by making the desire of every nation, of those elect across all nations, Christ himself. 
The purpose of this text is to get your, you focused on Christ so that he's the waypoint. So when you make a decision, who should be a pastor? Who should be an elder? Who should be a deacon? Who should be a, who should be a husband? Who should be a girlfriend? What should my kids be like? What should I be like? We're not firstly looking at career, degrees, stature, physicality, or ability. We're looking at the attributes of Christ and trying to match up the people in our lives that we surround ourselves with that influence us with those things that speak of Christ. And it takes a redeemed heart to do that because outside of a redeemed heart, we want what we want. And we want the comfortable things. We want the flashy things, the attractive things. And they're oftentimes very beneficial. They're not wicked things. They're just easy. But, and they're surface level. But God changes our hearts and we start wanting something different. And we start wanting what Christ looks like. And so we look for reflections of Christ in that possible spouse. We look for reflections of Christ in those kids so that we don't only praise them at the sporting events when they win, we praise them at the sporting events when they lose and still have the mind of Christ. When they don't cheat, when they put a teammate's needs before their own, praise that maybe more than you praise the win because that's the Christ-like attributes. Lots of people accumulate wins and are in reality losers. Now, this doesn't mean that, hey, you can go ahead and make poor choices. God will clean it up because they made a poor choice in Samuel and then he just provided David. Don't worry about it, right? Don't worry about it. Choose whoever and God will fix it. We know that there are consequences. As we read through 1 Samuel, you're going to see lots of consequences that could have been avoided had they looked for a king with spiritual eyes, looked for a king that's more like Yahweh, a servant of Yahweh, someone whose heart is after Yahweh instead of just the guy with a lot of horses, donkeys, land, and height. So we need to be careful with our choices. Some of us, because we've made poor choices, uh, have to clean some things up. And not all of it is in your power to do. You're already in that marriage. You already have raised your kids for this long with praising these things and not those things. It's not too late from this point forward to be the person you're supposed to be and to praise the things you're supposed to praise and to appreciate the things that you're supposed to appreciate in that spouse, in that child, in that whoever is in your life. There are some things we feel like, man, I can't clean that up. I made that decision already. But you go forward having learned some lessons and just like First Samuel, there's a lots, lots of disappointments and consequences. Let God weave it into something better. That means you start looking at the right things now and that's by shaping what you desire, shaping what, you, what pleases you, what impresses you, shaping it according to what the ultimate king is like and that is Jesus Christ. Some of you are before some of those really important decisions and now is the time to listen to wisdom. Now you might go, I don't know, I'm too foolish to figure out which, which is the wise counsel and which isn't. I think you can tell. I think you can tell the people in your lives that they may not have degrees stacked all over their walls, but they're, they follow the Lord and they're wise and they're prayerful. Those are people in your life you need to listen to, surround yourself with. Which of your friends may not be the most popular in the hallways of school, but are diligent. There's wisdom there. 
They make good choices. Ask that person's opinion about the girl you're interested in or the guy you're interested in. Use Christ as your navigational waypoint and allow him to limit the consequences in your lives by making choices that aren't bad choices, they're just lame choices. You want to make Christ choices, and we need to lean on him for that. Let's pray.